couple announcements. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024. God has uh, put us in this world for such a time as this. And so uh, I'm excited to see what he has for us. And like my good friend Brian Peterson likes to say, I have Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I don't have a care in the world. So amen to that. If you have your Bibles, we're back in the book of Luke this morning. And so if you'll turn there to the book of Luke, it's been about a month since we've been in the book of Luke. And while you're turning there, I have a few announcements. Uh, Number one, we're back on for Wednesday night uh, service, verse by verse through the Bible Wednesday night. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and um, we'll see how far we get. Uh, The plan is to um, go through, I'm not even going to tell you because we don't know, but just read uh, ahead, chapter 9, 10, and 11, if you will, (laughs) and uh, we'll see how that goes. So that's that, and then um, there's been some, uh, some of you have been asking about our prophecy update, so that's going to be January 21st, Sunday morning, so basically... Uh, If you don't know what that is, what we try to do is look at what the Bible says about the end times and the days that we live in, and then look at what's going on in our world and try to mesh those together. And so over the years, we've been doing that, and it's interesting because uh, when we first started doing those, there wasn't as much material to uh, look at, and Now, just doing it once a year uh, is very difficult because of so many things happening so quickly. So um, we're going to do our best to try to uh, look at some of the major things and try to tie them in and get get an understanding of what's going on in our world. And so that's January 21st. And this morning, we're going to have communion as well to start off the year. And so that's what we're going to do. So... If you are in the book of Luke, we're in chapter 10, and I would like to just sort of uh, get caught up with where we left off. In chapter 10, we find that Jesus is sending out the 70. Prior to this event, he sent out the 12. And so what we see Jesus doing is sort of preparing the church, which wasn't yet established, would be established later in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit would come upon the people. And so what he's doing is he's, first of all, himself demonstrating that what it means to be a believer in this world is to be one who goes and brings the kingdom of God to the world. Jesus did that. Jesus came to the world and he brought the kingdom of heaven to the world so that the world would know God. As he did that, he started with his group of people. He started with his 12 and he began to teach them and demonstrate to, him, to them uh, what it means to be a believer in this world. And they would watch him 
And then there, there would be a time for them to go. And so he sent out the 12, and the 12 would go, and they would have to trust in God's power and believe in his message. And as they went out, they realized that there was great joy in sharing the truth of God's word. There was great joy in bringing the kingdom of heaven to the people. So in chapter 10, we see now a bigger group being sent out, a group of 70 people sent out. And as they're sent out, they're given instructions of what to do. And if you'll notice in Luke chapter 10, verse 8, we'll look at that as sort of a launching pad for this morning's message. Jesus says, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. So he is explaining to them that this message that they have of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, that it's not going to be received by everybody. And as he's explaining that to them and teaching that to them, notice what it says in verse 17. In verse 17, it says, The 70 returned with joy. So they returned with joy. And this is what I want to talk to you about this morning. It's the joy of evangelism. The joy of evangelism. When I say evangelism and we talk about the gospel, there may be a lot of different things that come to your mind. But what's important to note is that if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, that means that you have received the gospel. The gospel, in Greek, the word is eulengelion, and it just means good news. So if you're a Christian, you've received the good news, the gospel, as we read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're reading the good news. The gospel message is the message of hope. It's the message of forgiveness. It's the message of eternal life. And so as we go through the Gospels, we're reading about the good news. We're reading about the message of God to the world. But see, this, this message, which to God is precious, the Gospel is His communication to us of how we can be right with God, how we can go to heaven. And the gospel message is exclusive. There's not other messages that will help one know God or bring one 
closer to God or bring one to heaven. There's just one gospel, one message. But to every Christian who has received that message, they also then have been entrusted with the same message. So if you're a Christian, it's because of the gospel. And if you have received the gospel, then you now are one who knows something that other people don't. You have something that other people don't. So what are some of those things? And how does the Bible talk about the gospel? What does it say about the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the good news? I'd like to read some scriptures for you in that regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, I declare to you the gospel, which is preached to you, which you also received and by which you stand, by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I delivered to you first that which I also received. So you see the receiving then brings about the proclaiming. He says this this gospel, it is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the message of God. What does that mean? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that what actually took place, what transpired with the message that we're proclaiming, the message of Jesus dying and raising again, is that God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So the gospel is where that transaction took place. The message of, we'll say the message of the cross or the message of what Jesus has done. It's the message of Jesus taking our place in judgment. It's the message of because of that, that we can be righteous before God. It's in Romans 1.16, it's the power of God to salvation. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. So there is huge ramifications of rejecting the gospel. And that's condemnation, which Jesus himself tells us. In 1 John 4, I'm sorry, 1 John, yeah, 1 John 9, 4, 9, it says, In this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins or the satisfaction for the penalty of our sins. 
Romans 6, 23. You getting all this? Romans 6, 23 says the wages or the payment of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 8 said, is, says, For it is by grace that we are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And John 3, 36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So this is the gospel. This is the message, and this is the message that has been entrusted to those who have received the message. We are now the messengers of this message. And what we find in our text is that a new believer, a born-again person, that's someone who's received this message, that they will then find their joy in the proclaiming or the sharing of this message. In other words, this is what we've been wired to do as new believers. Part of our transformation that has occurred is we've been transformed to the extent where the gospel message is the priority in our life and the sharing of it is the great joy that we have. Just like a retriever. Do any of you have retrievers? Dogs. <laughs> what do they want to do? They want to retrieve. They're wired to retrieve. So if you have a retriever and you don't like to throw balls, then don't get a retriever because they're going to keep bringing a ball to you. Or a guard dog or watchdog. They want to watch. They want to guard. I used to have an English bulldog. And she would just sit and watch the front door. Any noise, she would just, her hair would stand up and she'd be ready to just attack somebody. Or a chihuahua, they're just born to bark. <laughs> but see, this is what so many Christians fail to realize. If you're truly born again, you will find your joy in the proclamation and the sharing of the gospel. In 3 John, verse 4, it says, uh, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And so the gospel message then, as we are transformed by the gospel message, as we are saved people, it now becomes the, the important thing of our life. It now becomes the thing that we do. And so in our text, we sort of are, are following Jesus and how he's bringing about this understanding 
to His disciples from 12 and then 70 and then eventually to the church. This would be the prerogative of the church, the gospel. This is what Jesus finished the book of Matthew talking about, the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey God. And so that's what the church is. That's what the church does. And so, for example, our church, the, the highlight of everything that we are as a church is our baptisms that we have. That is the result or the fruit of everything that we are here for, the money that people give, the time that people give, the energy, the ministries, and all that. It all culminates in people receiving the gospel and then walking in that truth as newborn again believers and then sharing that truth. And so we see this here in our text. As we look at verse 13, we're going to begin to to look at this this great joy that those 70 who came back to Jesus, that that they were explaining and expressing to him that they experienced without even probably realizing to begin with how wonderful it was going to be to proclaim the gospel. And it starts off sort of, at least where we pick it up, sort of interesting. So in verse 13, it starts with, Jesus giving them this this warning where he says, Woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida, for the mighty works which were done in you, if they had been, been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So part of gospel proclamation is also the understanding that there will be those who reject it. Jesus is pointing out two cities here, Chorazin and Bethsaida. They are on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus would do much of his ministry in that area. And he's telling them, he's saying, woe to you, these two cities. You cities who were religious, Jewish, who were familiar with Jesus' teachings and experienced the, the work and the power of Jesus there. It says that there are mighty works done there. And he's comparing these cities in Jesus' time, he's comparing them to pagan cities of ancient times, older cities, Tyre and Sidon, that rejected and were enemies of the people of God. And those cities were judged by God because they came against the people of God. And those cities are non-existent today. And Jesus is saying in in his time, in real time, he's saying, look at Tyre and Sidon. Look what they lived for. Look what they were all about. They were worldly. They were all about money and pleasure and business and 
their life in this world. And because of that, they rejected God. And they became enemies of the people of God. And look at them now. They're nothing. And then he uses that and says in his time, he says, now these cities, I myself, God in the flesh, I went and I demonstrated who I was through miracles and through my teaching. I did mighty works there. And you are indifferent towards it. In other words, their desire for the things of this world and their life in this world were so great that even when heaven came down in their face and demonstrated the power of heaven, they were indifferent towards it. They were so consumed by their own things and their own life that when heaven came down and God was face to face with them, they blew it off. That's shocking. But it happens all the time. It happens in our day. These mighty works that Jesus did were to demonstrate and reveal who he was. But notice, notice, what would be the proper response to the demonstration of who Jesus was to the world, to those cities? What would be the proper response? And he tells us the proper response would be to repent. That's the proper response. He's saying if, if I did what I did in Chorazin and Bethsaida, if I did that entire inside on, they would have repented. And they would have done it in a, in a certain way where he, he says in sackcloth and ashes, which is a, a way to express total profound mourning. People who have experienced devastation. And that is the proper response when one encounters, has a true encounter with the living God. It is the realization of our own sinful condition. The reason one would have a response like that is because they would realize that they are not right with God and because of that they are subject to God's judgment. This is that feeling like I'm in trouble I did something wrong and I got caught and there's nothing I can do about it. It's terror, it's fear. And this is a, a, a common response that we see throughout the Bible when people realize who Jesus is. However, it is possible, and we see in this text, and it happens all the time, that people can hear the word of God and just be indifferent towards it, unmoved by it, unaffected by it, and go on as, as if it never happened, unaware of their true condition before God that they are in serious danger and peril. Jesus said in John chapter 3, describe the, the condition of perishing. That means that if you're not in Christ, 
you're actually perishing now. If you're not in Christ now, you're literally one breath away of eternal damnation. And yet we see that there are people who are completely indifferent to that. Unmoved. Unfazed. And Jesus is condemning that. And he's telling, this is for his disciples, and he's telling his disciples about these cities, but he's also proclaiming that these cities are so indifferent that in verse 14, they're, Will be, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon will actually be better off than the cities that have experienced the presence and the power of God. It would actually be better. It's, it's going to be better for them. Do you notice what he says, at the what? You see that? I want everybody to see that. At the judgment. What does that mean? It means there's judgment. Plain, clear, and simple. It means that there's judgment. And this is Jesus himself proclaiming that. So you may not believe that, but just be very clear. The Bible is very clear about judgment. So if you decide to reject that or not believe that, then you're, you're basically rolling the dice with your eternity. The understanding of judgment, if we're normal people, should cause great fear, I would say terror, to come over us. The thought and the biblical teaching that one who dies without Christ, they will have no do-overs, no second chances. There will be no more opportunities to say, oh, whoops, I messed up. That will be completely it and one's fate will be sealed for all eternity. Is that something you want to gamble with? Is that something that would be worth sowing your wild oats for? Is that something that you would be willing to trade pleasures of sin in this world for an eternity of torment? In Matthew 7 21, it gives us the picture of this where there are people who are presuming that they are good with God and he will say, depart from me. Now imagine hearing those words. And when he says depart, it means that there's nothing ever, 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 ever you could ever do about it that you are now going to be tormented in hell forever. The place where the Bible says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, 
where the worm dies not. This is eternal. So try to keep that in perspective. What would one be willing to gamble with that or presume on something that the Bible doesn't say? We all read it. We all see it. It's all over the Bible. There is judgment. And Jesus is saying, as you go and proclaim the gospel, know what the stakes are and remember why you're doing it. Because of judgment. Because eternity is eternal. You ever see those court scenes where someone hears their sentence and they're sentenced to life in prison? And you just sort of can, can feel their life at that moment, the understanding of life in this world, just it's gone. It's done. But even in those scenarios, there's always something you think, well, they might be an appeal or there might be something they might find out, some new information or something like that. But even in all that, even that a person that's on death row and waiting to be executed, even for them, they can still spend eternity in heaven. But once you take your last breath here without Christ, that's it. There's, there's nothing else except for judgment. And that judgment is eternal. And it is unimaginable torment worse than anything our minds can comprehend. And it'll never end. And the person in hell will be fully aware of their condition, fully aware of the torment. They will experience the pain physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, mentally, in every way, emotionally, every way they'll experience that and it'll never end. And that's why we get these warnings like this in the Bible. And that's why it's important for me, even though it's uncomfortable to talk about these things, even to think about these things, it's important that we address these things because no one has to go there. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is no one has to go there. But see, in verse 15, he continues with that, and he says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. So this is actually where Jesus stayed during his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is where Jesus did the majority of his miracles. And that's why it's saying they were exalted to heaven. They they were given great insight through the miracles of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. They had access to Jesus. And what they did with that, it, it, it brings about the understanding of we are responsible for what we hear and what we know and what we receive. If you are an American here in this country, you have a great responsibility 
I could be wrong, but I, I doubt that anybody here has never heard of Jesus or never heard of the gospel, never heard of the things we're talking about or never read the Bible. We are a people who have the freedom to meet like this. We have great responsibility. And yet we are seeing our country, just as Capernaum, rejecting the very God who made us the nation that we are. There is great responsibility and great need to respond. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And it says, Capernaum, because you saw these great miracles and you heard these great teachings, but you just didn't care. You just blew it off. You just say, I'll get to it someday. Then you, you will experience a judgment. It'll all come to fruition for you one day. And so in verse 16, he says this. He says this to his 70. He who hears you, hears me. You know what that means? That means if you're sharing the gospel or proclaiming the gospel, the words of the gospel are the words of God. And one that hears you is hearing God. So we are messengers. That's why it's so important to stick to the word. That's why we don't want to, and I don't want to, and we don't want to as a church, launch off and away from scripture and begin to just talk about all these various topics and subjects and things of psychology and self-help and self-improvement because we want to be teaching and speaking the words of God. And so I know because of what we're doing here this morning is the word of God. I know that if, if you hear what I'm saying, you're hearing God because you're hearing his word. That's why I stick to the word the best I can. That's why as a church, we teach verse by verse and line by line. That's why we don't like to take liberties and just make up our own stuff to try to get you fired up and happy and sappy so that you keep coming back. We want to teach the word of God. As we teach the word of God, we know the word of God is being proclaimed. The truth is being proclaimed. God is having his word in our church. God is having his authority, not a person, not an individual, but this is God's word. So this is the confidence that the disciples would have, that if you hear the word that the disciples would share or proclaim, then they were hearing from God because it was God's word. So what that means is then on the flip side, verse 16, second part, he says, he who rejects you, they reject me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So if you're proclaiming the gospel, if you're teaching the word and you reject it, then you're rejecting Jesus, your only hope of salvation. And if you're rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting the Father. So you can't like bypass Jesus and say, I worship God the Father, but not Jesus. 
they're one and the same. We, we serve a triune God. And so you can't leapfrog over Jesus, it's not possible. If you have Jesus, you have the Father. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the Father. Another way to put it out, if you have the Son, you have the Father. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. So as Jesus is teaching them about going out and proclaiming this message, he tells them and gives, this, gives them this warning, and he gives a warning to these cities. But here, here's, here's the teaching point. Well, we will find joy in proclaiming the gospel and not necessarily the results that happen from our proclaiming the gospel. So often we get so tied to the results, almost like a salesperson on commission, where we find our joy or satisfaction based on how many people respond. And don't get me wrong, that is fantastic. But our job is in the proclamation. God's job is in the salvation. And He uses us to work together with Him. But what we find is, and what you will find, even if the gospel is rejected when you share it, you will feel great joy in just that you shared it. That you got an opportunity to share how one can come to be saved in Jesus Christ and how you yourself were saved in Jesus Christ. You will find great joy in the proclamation. And we never know in the proclamation if somewhere down the line that person is going to receive the proclamation. But that, that's not the point. The point is, and, and our ambition should be praying and seeking opportunities just to share with somebody that they could be saved, that Jesus died for their sins and rose again for the dead. And there's, there, there's an opportunity for them not to perish. The alarm signals are going off now. God is saying, look, you better listen. You better pay attention. And so the, the first point, and it's an important one, the joy is in the proclamation. It's not in the results, but it's in the opportunity. It's doing what we are born again to do, like the retriever, like the bulldog. The joy is in the actual proclamation. And God even uses the rejection for his glory. Because it's important for us to make the gospel clear to someone so they have something clear to reject. And that's why it's important that when people do reject it, that they understand what they're doing. And that, that we let them know that, look, this is what it means to reject what Jesus did on the cross for you. This is what it means, judgment. And to make that very clear, 
Because in the proclamation of the gospel, then the other side of that is that we make it clear enough so somebody is, they know what they're rejecting. So they really understand, okay, this is what I'm rejecting. I'm, I'm willingly, knowingly rejecting this invitation, this offer of forgiveness of my sins. And so that's the first thing that's really laid out is this, the joy of evangelism is, is proclaiming. And I want to encourage you to pray and look for opportunities and take up every opportunity because you will find great joy in doing that. The second thing then we find is in verse 17. In the joy of evangelism, it has to do with our position in Christ as we share the gospel with other people. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 17. So this is where the disciples come back. We read that a, a little bit ago. So the 70 return with what? Joy. With joy. They were stoked. They were pumped. They went out and they probably experienced rejection and slander. Some people got saved and all these things. And God gave them power to do what he's called them to do. And they came back and they're just so filled with joy. That's because they were doing what God called them to do and they were designed to do. Do you see that? So that's what's important. If you're a believer, we are called to do this. And when we're called to do what God has designed us to do is where we find our greatest joy. So they, they return and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they, they discover there's power in the name of Jesus. And they wanted Jesus to know because if you read carefully, the 70 that were sent out, it didn't say that they were given power over demons. The 12 that were sent out, they were given power over demons specifically. It was said that. It wasn't specifically said that about the 70, but they came back and they're, they're doing the things that Jesus called them to do. But then they're saying, even the demons, man, they couldn't handle us. The demons, they, they, and what they were experiencing was supernatural power. And the excitement of experiencing God working through us, that's what they were experiencing. So anybody who is serving the Lord in where God has called them to serve will experience a supernatural power working through them, a supernatural enabling. And it may be just subtle. It may be something that somebody doesn't even realize what it is, but it, they will experience a joy in just serving a joy in doing what God has called them to do. But they, they had some big ones. They experienced this power over darkness, and they're telling Jesus about it. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Jesus' answer to them in, in their excitement over their power over demons, as he's, he's telling them, like, like, look, 
I'm the all-powerful one. I am overall, in all, through all. It's not even a competition. Did you know that? It's not a competition between God and Satan. That's not a competition. It may be a competition between Satan and God's angels, but it's not a competition between God and Satan. They don't wrestle. They don't box. They don't get themselves in a cage and choke each other out. God just, he's so powerful, he just says something and it just is. That's it. He's in a whole different category as the creator, only one creator, versus the creation. Everything else is the creation. And he's telling them, like, almost in a way, like, well, yeah, of course they're subject to you. Because the power that you have is my power. And my power is such that there's no competition. When Satan came against God in heaven before he was Satan as we know him, and he tried to be God and usurp authority, then he was cast out of heaven so quick it would make your head spin. Probably Jesus is also telling them, don't get all prideful about what you just did. Look what happened to Satan. But here, then, he reorders their priorities in joy. Did you hear that? He reorders their priorities in joy. Why? Why? Because if our priority in joy is just results-oriented or just signs-oriented then what will happen is we'll start to live for those things and eventually we will die by those things or we will lose our enthusiasm in, or our momentum. It's not about the product or the results or the things that happen, but Jesus resets that and they would need to know that And he says in verse 19, he says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. So what he's saying is when we go out with the gospel, God gives us authority and power that Satan can't stop. That's why it's so important for individual believers and a church body to focus on the word of God, the message of God, the truth of God, and, and the gospel of God. That's what Satan can't stop. He can stop when we get in the flesh and try to make a church in our own image. Make a church like we want it and do our things. That will be stopped. Satan has power over that. But he has no power over the word of God, the gospel of God, and the things of God. Jesus himself said the gates of Hades would not stop the church. And that's a church that is focused on the things of God and the word of God and the truth of God. So he says, I'll give, I give you all this authority to trample serpents and scorpions over all power of the enemy. He gives us that individually and corporately. And nothing shall by all 
or any means hurt you or come against you to stop the things of God. But nevertheless, all, all that power that's exciting, we get caught up in, into that. We get caught up into numbers and, and look at all how many people showed up and look how many people got saved. And yes, we can rejoice in that, but just hold on a second. That's not the priority. In verse 20, it says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's it. That's it. So what it, what it does is, and what we understand is, joy comes from our position in Christ. So if you're a believer, you're positioned in Christ as a forgiven son of God. You're positioned as a child of God. You have been justified by your faith in God. You're standing before God as, as one blameless and holy because you are in Jesus Christ. So that's your position. So now from that position... Now, we can invite people to join us. That's what we do when we proclaim the gospel. We do it from this position as a forgiven sinner. And we can, from this position, say, do you want to be forgiven too? And we can do that because we were once not forgiven sinners. And we were born again by our faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel message, the receiving of the gospel message. So we were saved by that. So we can tell people, hey, you can be saved too. And so often we focus our gospel message on things like, well, you could have a better life and things will be a lot easier and you'll get that position that you've always wanted to get. And I would encourage you not to do that because your life actually might get more difficult. A lot of laughing because it does. We all know that. But that's not the point. The, the point is we rejoice because our names are written in heaven. Because nothing can take away our forgiveness. Because our life in this world now is very different to where we live for the things above and not the things of earth. Where our joy, our satisfaction... Uh, our peace, our love, it comes from God himself. We don't need the world to do that for us. And so we share and proclaim the gospel from this position of being right with God and just inviting people to join us. We do it as those who were blind and now we see. We do it as those who are excited and anxious to tell people, hey, you could be saved too. Please join me. Because there's the other side of that, and that's eternal damnation if you don't. And so it takes the pressure off. A lot of people who proclaim and share the gospel, who call themselves evangelists, put a lot of pressure on themselves to make converts. Some, even to the extent, like cults that go to your door or you run into, they do it to earn things in heaven. We don't do that. 
The battle's already won. We don't earn anything. We're re recipients of God's grace, the greatest thing that can ever happen to a human being. Of course I want to tell you about that because you can have that too. And then the last point in verse 21, before we get into communion, is in this, this privilege that we've been given to know God and share God. Do you see that as a privilege? Or do you see that as a duty that you don't want to do, but you have to do? See, to, to know and understand the sharing of the gospel is to understand the privilege it is in, to invite people into eternity with Jesus Christ. So watch what happens in verse 21. He says, in that hour. So all this is going on. Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. Do you ever hear or maybe your own understanding is that Jesus never laughed and Jesus was just a man of sorrows only and he's just walking around, just everything was just so terrible and difficult. He was a man of sorrow, but he was also a man of joy. He sorrowed over people's rejection of him and sins of people and the condition that people allow themselves to get into because they reject him. But Jesus was filled with joy. But you know what's interesting? Isn't that kind of how it is to be a Christian? There's sadness, but there's this overarching joy always. Because the joy is from the Lord and not anything else. So it says Jesus is rejoicing in the Spirit, which is important because that's how we rejoice in the Spirit. And he begins to thank the Father. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. In other words, those who think they're too smart and too sophisticated and too good for the gospel and for the things of God. A person like that will never see the things of God. They are blinded by their pride. But he says, but you have revealed them to babes. What that means is people who come in an unassuming way, in a genuine way, really wanting to know God, just a humble way. These are the people who God's truth is revealed to. But then he says this, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to, what does that say? Reveal. So Jesus has to be revealed to us. And I believe any sincere seeker of Jesus who asks that he will be revealed to them. So in verse 23, he turned to his disciples and he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And what he's saying is to his disciples, and I, I can... I think it's proper to extend it to us today. 
that we're able to see with hindsight the coming of the Messiah to the world. The coming of grace, the coming of love that demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we live in a time where we get, have, we get to look back and see that and then also look forward to his coming again. But what he's saying is there's joy in the gospel because of the great privilege that you and I have, if you're a Christian, that our eyes have been opened to see God. That he has been revealed to us. And to share that with other people then is the greatest joy. We are like those who see telling those who are blind how to see. We sit in this position of forgiven sinners with the privilege of the message of the proclamation of forgiveness to all mankind. We are most blessed and privileged people on the face of this earth. And so as we finish this and we take communion, let us keep in mind the gospel is our thing. The gospel is that which has been entrusted to us. The gospel is why we are saved. And the fields are white, ready for the harvest. Pray for laborers. And if you look in the mirror, you'll be one. Go and share the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ, and do it much. Amen? Let's pray. We're going to have communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It's great to be back in your word, Lord. Now as we take communion, I just first want to invite anybody who is here who has never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Never made a, just a clear decision to repent of sins and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So I pray now that if anybody is here or anybody listening, if there's any doubt or confusion in your life, just make a clear proclamation today to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Do it now because you never know when that last breath is. It's not worth gambling your eternity on. Do it now while you have time. Do it now. Today is the day of salvation. As we take communion this morning, it is a great reminder of the message that we have today. That Jesus came. He died on the cross for our sins. And he rose again from the dead. And so we celebrate that. We commemorate that. We remember that today, Lord. Let's continue each, each of us in prayer now. Just keep your eyes closed. And we just have a few minutes. So 
The ushers are going to come by and pass out the communion elements. And while they're doing that, let this be a special time between you and the Lord. Start this first service of 2024 surrendering everything to Him. Trusting Him. So take a few minutes. As the ushers come by, they'll maybe nudge you or somebody will nudge you. Hold on to the communion elements and we'll take it all together. What a picture Jesus has given us in these elements. The bread and the cup representing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him. When I remember Jesus, as he said, especially as we do communion, I just remember it's still unbelievable to me that God would come into this world and die on the cross for me and for you. It's unbelievable. No wonder he told his disciples to do this in remembrance of me because if we didn't, it would be easy to forget such an amazing love that Jesus, he died for you and for me. We're told that it was love, love that drove him to the cross, his love for us. A personal, individual, dying love God was willing to do whatever was necessary to bring us into a relationship with him. And so as we hold these elements, we're just reminded once again how intense his love is for us. It's so intense. He knows our tears. He sees your broken heart. He sees your burdens that you don't even share with people. He knows all that. The cross tells us once again that although we are weak, he is strong. The cross tells us that his love will never stop and nothing and no one can separate us from his love. That because of the cross, there is now no more condemnation to those who are in Christ. There's no guilt, there's no shame. There's no penalty. Jesus said, it is finished. Let's remember that as we take communion this morning, that it is finished. Everything's going to be okay. 
There is hope. There is love. There is peace. Not in this world, but as these elements remind us, in Jesus Christ. In him and him alone. So let's remember Jesus together. Let's remember his body as we remember through the taking in of this bread. Let's remember his body that was given for our sins. And let's remember his blood that washes away our sin. Let's partake of the cup together. Christian, you are free, you are forgiven, and one day you'll be with Jesus face to face. Let's all stand and worship the Lord. If anybody would like prayer this morning, we'll have our prayer team up front, and I just invite you to come on up as we sing this last song. God bless you.